what ways does serving others, like how do you express that to them in a way that, that generates that kind of commitment and trust like you did in the military? Every single week, I have on Monday a breakfast and a virtual breakfast for the people who are not in New York, where I personally welcome every single of the owner in the company. And mm. I share a bit the vision, I share the values, I share our operating model, I share our activity system, and I answer, you know, with a lot of stark honesty about all of their questions. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lady Team Nation. Welcome back to another great episode. Today, I have for you Pascal Udaye, who is the founder and CEO of Orvian, a collective of premium and prestigious beauty brands committed to stark honesty, co-creation, and making a sustainable cultural impact. He previously served as a senior leader at organizations you know, like Hinkle and Procter and Gamble, and he's French. And he's lived in six different countries, three continents, and been married for 35 years with three kids who have never lived in France. So maybe we'll dig into that too. Pascal, welcome to Lead the Team, sir. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thanks for having me. So listen, Pascal, understand that you served in the French Air Force. What did those days of serving in the, in the French Air Force, um, what, what did you learn about being a leader? Yeah, French, frankly, you know, I was very uh, fortunate to, uh, to, to become an officer in the French Air Force. I was, uh, uh, I did the French Academy. And um, what I learned a lot from, uh, from this uh, moment in the, in the army mm. is uh, the fact that leadership is built on serving. Mm. When you basically um, serve, you understand that you need to go first to battle and you need to eat last. And um, actually, your authority often becomes totally unquestionable when you put your personal welfare at the, you know, at the service of the people that, that actually are serving under you. So servant leadership was one of the biggest learning. I thought that leadership was giving orders. It's exactly the opposite in the army. And mm. I applied actually this le leadership principle throughout my careers. Was there one moment that you're like, you know what, I, I saw that done in the military in a way that was memorable or did it come up for you in a, in a time where you had to make a change? No, actually, I, you know, you, you, you need to lead a, a squadron of uh, 30 young recruits uh, and they come from different backgrounds and mm. different social level. And, uh, you know, you, you need to make sure you connect with them at a personal level mm. so that they... They, they, they continue to follow you, uh, whatever the task. And uh, the consequence is that you learn that throughout. I spent 18 months as a co-pilot of Mirage F1, flying, uh, you know, uh, Mirage F1 jets. And when I was leading these people with me, I discovered that making sure that they see you serve them was making a huge difference in their commitment. Yeah, and commitment's pretty darn important. In the military, when they may be putting their own lives at risk, and also 
I think about trust because they may not really understand, always understand the bigger picture. And sometimes you just need people to execute on orders. And in those moments, if you've been serving them, if you've established that trust, they're much more likely to execute on that. Your point is important, Ben, because in the military, what is interesting is that trust sometimes has a, a premium versus expertise. Mm. When you go to battle with somebody you trust who has your back, or somebody who is expert, I would go to battle with somebody I trust. Nice. So thinking forward to today, so here you are with this cool company. How does it manifest itself in how you're leading Orvian? Now, first of all, Orvian is a different type of company. We don't even call ourselves a company. We call ourselves a collective of brands who mm. are here to change beauty for the better. It's a new company. It's a human-sized company. We are 18 months old. Uh, we started as a carve-out of three brands uh, in makeup, Laura Mercier, Bare Minerals, and Buxom. And we had to create the company from scratch. The system uh, recruit every single individual. So in close to two years, we recruited 2,000 people, first in 22 markets, and now we are in 48 markets. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And, uh, and it's quite a journey to actually create something that wants to be different and make a difference, first in the health of the skin, in the health of the people, and mm. potentially in the health of the world. So thinking about serving others first, it gets complicated. In the military, you're doing it. Well, I don't know how big the people, how big your group was, but I'm assuming it wasn't as big in the military as what you're leading now. And 2,000 people are all over the place. Right, you said 40 48 countries. 48 countries. All right. So and I, help us think through this. So this, this is cool. CEO with this grounded leadership philosophy about serving others first or eat, leaders eating last kind of deal. And you want to infuse this with your people, but you don't see them all the time. Maybe you see them over Teams or Zoom periodically. You're trying to communicate over mess you know email or or this podcast what what ways does serving others like how do you express that to them in a way that that generates that kind of commitment and trust like you did in the military it's very simple i'm doing something which is pretty odd for a ceo every single employee that has been recruited when they start in the company i speak with them so every single week I have on Monday a breakfast and a virtual breakfast for the people who are not in New York, where I personally welcome every single of the owner in the company. And mm. I share a bit the vision, I share the values, I share our operating model, I share our activity system, and I answer, you know, with a lot of stark honesty about all of their mm. questions. Mm. So you create a personal bond. I do not believe in a distance but I believe in a combination of being demanding on yourself and your people and being approachable. And this mm -hmm. recipe is something that I've applied all my career. Wow. And what kind of feedback have you gotten from your team and your employees since you started doing this breakfast? But first of all, some of them have been working like 20 years in big multinationals. They never met their CEO in 20 years. So the first day in the company, they say, wow, we meet the CEO. That's strange. So it's a different <laughs> type of culture. Oh, I got to chill. 
And you're right. Most people don't in a company that size. And it's cool how you've brought that lesson that you learned early on and you you saw the power of the military, front in the French military, uh, and you've been able to channel it. So congratulations. Um, what do you say to a CEO who's like, you know what, Pascal, I don't have time for that. My company, we've got so many moving parts. We've got so many fires to put out. I don't have time to schedule breakfast with them on employees. What do I say? I believe that you basically have results with and through your organization. And uh, you do that via engaging with them, knowing them. Because when you engage with them, you can motivate them in the right way. And then after that, you make sure you enable them to deliver. And you can mm. only do that when you're close to the organization. What a great way to be close. Now, these breakfasts are virtual in nature? Uh, or Most of them, you cannot basically have breakfast with somebody who is in China when I'm in New York. <laughs> no, I was just asking. You're like, we're going to China. So it might be dinner for them. It could be breakfast. You're you're trying to create an ambiance. So just, just one more double click sort of in this environment for leaders. What do you do when you're meeting some envisioning? How, how many people roughly attend the breakfast? Like, on like a, 10, 10 to 15 maximum. Okay. So they don't know you. They're going to have a breakfast time with the CEO. How do you approach it? What do you say? to make them feel comfortable versus, you know, feeling uptight about being on the spot and being and, and not communicating and being really quiet because they don't want to screw up on their first day with the, with the CEO. We make it simply human. Uh, we go around the room and people basically introduce themselves. And I always ask them, you know, not to be too professional in their introduction, but for example, to share one, odd thing about themselves that they want to share with the group and immediately that breaks the ice and you move from a professional relationship to a human yeah. personal link and I do the same so I role model it myself mm. okay great break the ice don't be too professional which is just the opposite of what most people are thinking when they're going to get on with the CEO but no that's cool I like that I think a lot of leaders can benefit from that uh, especially doing it early and making a difference in that way. Now, one of your, you're known for talking about the notion of CEO as the social architect. What do you mean by that? Uh, too often I've seen, you know, CEOs who believe that their role and their mission is to basically impose themselves uh, to their organization or be control freaks, or be, you know, too much in the details and do not leave freedom or empowerment to their people. I believe exactly in the opposite. We talked about trust. I believe that you need to give trust immediately to your people. They don't need to earn it, which is the opposite of a lot of leadership philosophies. And how, why I'm defining myself as a social architect my role is to attract the best talents, to make them feel great in the company so that they can deliver to the best of their capabilities and to make sure that I'm developing them, you know, in a way that they're at their peak performance 
and second, that the people don't work in silo, like mm -hmm. an architect, and that the different elements of the company, the different people work well together. So it's like mm -hmm. doing architecture, but in a social environment. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like culture, but it's more proactive when you're thinking about, hey, we want to create a culture. No, I'm the social architect. Means you're blueprinting it the way I look at it, like a blueprint, like a design. And if you, the CEO and you, the leader, design the blueprint effectively, other people can build the house. They can build the culture based on the blueprint you set out. And I'm sure for listeners, if you've ever tried to do a house renovation without architect and it came out looking like Frankenstein without intent, because like a builder, like build a little bit, step back, look, build a little more over months and it just comes out like a mess but hiring an architect and it ain't cheap and we're dealing with you know we're going through renovation stuff here and architecture stuff it's nice to have a beautiful blueprint to follow do you do you think of it like a blueprint that you're handing over or yeah I mean, my role is to to define a vision and to make sure that every country every brand Every function is working to their full potential to deliver this vision. As a CEO, you cannot be an expert in every single element of the company. So that's why you need to make sure that you're giving the right direction and leave the freedom to the expert to basically do their magic and use their mm. superpowers. And that's what I do. I like that. I like that. So I've got a lot of other questions about your leadership, which I'm really curious about, but I need to dig, need to dig into Orvian a little bit because it seems like there's a story there. And a couple of things that come to me when I was going through it. Number one, I do, I got, like you mentioned before, you're a collective of beauty brands. And it seems to be, you say, stark honesty, co-creation and sustainable cultural impact. But you're a beauty company, right? So. Other beauty companies, they're focused on making people look good, confidence. You don't say that in here. No. Start kind of say co-creation, sustainable cultural impact. We actually say the exact opposite. Actually, Ben, we're not a beauty company. I start from the premise that a beauty company is trying to do everything. I mean, have categories like hair care, not really relevant for you, Ben. Yeah, uh, y'all listeners care. know I'm a bald man. He had to get his dig in. Thanks, ah. Pascal. So, hair care, oral care, face yeah. care. Yes. A beauty company would go across a lot of different categories. Mm. That's not mm. what we do. Mm. We make the choice, because strategy is about choice, to focus only on the face. So, we will never have hair care product. We'll never have oral care product. And I used to work on Crest and Oral B in the past. At yes. PNG. Procter and Gamble, so, yeah. mm -hmm. so we are not a beauty care company. We are actually a sustainable face care company, which is very different. And uh, that, because I believe that beauty is moving into wellness and wellness is moving into health. Mm -hmm. And that has been accelerated post-COVID. And as a consequence, if you only remain at the beauty level, you limit your potential because women don't want anymore to look beautiful, to your point, Ben. They want to feel great. And that's very mm. different. Mm. Because looking beautiful was the marketing of the 90s. Now we are in a different era. Mm. The wellness era? 
Uh, well, wellness yeah, wellness towards health. Want to boost your productivity and decision making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. Well, sustainable, sustainable cultural impact. How can a face care wellness company make a sustainable cultural impact? First of all, you need to be clear about what is sustainability for you. Okay. Sustainability for Orvean is not about, you know, working on carbon footprint and not working on the reality of the health of the people. So the very first principle we have at Orvean is that we work on the health of the skin. And second, we work on the health of the people. Mm. And maybe we will be big enough one day to work on the health of the planet. But before having the arrogance to think you can change the world, let's start, you know, working one skin at a time, one person at a time, and making sure that we put on the skin of the people product that will make them having healthier skin. I love that. And it's bold. Prioritizing is a ruthless business by nature if you're doing it right. And you want sustainable impact on the earth. You want carbon footprint. Yes. But your point, we hope we get to address that at some point. What we need to do is focus on sustainability when it comes to our product and, and our customers. And uh, yeah, that's that's a powerful, powerful statement. How is the beauty industry viewing Orvian right now? Are you sort of like this insurgent company? Are you outside the sphere? Are you like a gnat that's like a fly in the ointment? Like what? <laughs> How are they seeing you all? Um, do you even care? <laughs> I I believe this year as a as a positive agent of change, mm. in the sense that uh, one of our values is benevolent activists. I mean, when you think about mm. activism, most of the time it's a negative notion. But the fact that we are adding the benevolent part means that we want to change the status quo for the better. I mean, humbly, but forcefully. That's what mm. we are doing. And uh, we do that via working on our product, on our formula, our packaging, our up recycling, upcycling. And we are very present in the, in the beauty industry association and working group in order to try to influence at our humble level the direction that the industry is taking. Mm, love it. Listeners may have a have this question. You are you have been a big company guy, a huge company guy. Procter and Gamble, Hinkle, I mean, big companies. Here you are in this. I mean, two thousand is not that small, but it's still it's still is. I would call it's not an upstart, right? It's three brands that carve out and all this stuff. What are you? I mean, how are you feeling like that as a leader right now? Do you feel? I think on one hand, like I would feel like excited, like you can make a bigger impact potentially with the people working for you, because and you can see more growth versus three percent. You're going for bigger numbers probably, but also it could be like a blow to the ego, 
you're like, well, I'm an executive for these huge companies, publicly traded. I mean, how are you, like, what's going on for you? And so how are you viewing this opportunity? I believe the big difference uh, of what the owner and myself, we feel mm -hmm. is that we are now in an entrepreneurial approach. And mm -hmm. uh, you're really an entrepreneur when you have skin in the game. So for no instance... No pun intended. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Skin in the game. Skin in the game. And, and the point is, um, the totality of my leadership, including myself, have invested their own money. They did not receive money. They invested their own money ah. in the company. Okay. So, and that's for me the definition of entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is not to be a highly paid executive, is to basically have skin in the game. No pun intended again. <laughs> uh, and that makes a, a, a big difference. And mm. my you feel different going to work. Yeah, your yeah. motivation every day. You don't work to every day to come to work for somebody. You work for yourself. And second, you work for a human-sized company that is trying to basically change beauty for the better. And that makes a big difference versus working for a big multinational where you're only a number and your legacy is limited. Here, every single employee has, will have and is having a huge legacy. Yeah. So I suspect on Monday morning you walk in, you feel a lot different than you did walk in on Mondays at PNG. Yeah, it's it's different. And it, it it's probably a different moment in your life. I mean, the PNG, the ankle of this world, are beautiful company. They continue to be, you know, for new starters. Uh, an yeah. amazing school of marketing or business, but you know, at a different moment in your in your career, you want to basically make a real difference, and the real difference you make it more in an entrepreneurial environment. Uh, yeah, uh, since I started my own business years ago, and I worked for big companies, Honeywell uh, being one of them, I thought I worked hard working for Honeywell. And then I had my own business and I was like, whoa, that is another level. And neither one was bad in that way. But when you're working entrepreneurship, I'm curious, are you, and, you, and I know you put big hours in before, but how have your hours and thought wheels on your business, like how, how much more has it increased? at Orvian since your previous work. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's a step change. You know, <laughs> all the Orvianers know that I'm the first one in the office and the last one to quit every day. I'm here in my office at 6.15 a.m. every morning and I'm leaving around 7. And you know what? I love it. Nobody is forcing me to do it uh, because I do not believe in work-life balance. I think the concept of work-life balance is aged and is passé, I would say in French. Mm, the, concept, the concept I'm following is the concept of work-life integration. Mm -hmm. That means you need to integrate your work in your life and your life in your work. And if I decide it's my choice to work two hours on a Saturday morning to free up some time on the Monday to go play squash because I play squash, it's my choice. 
And I don't want anybody to basically impose on me what I need to do. Because at the end of the day, it's about results. It's not about face time. Yes. So entrepreneur, you got skin in the game. This is your business. And it is a clearly a big change in months. Like you say, you may, you, because you got to get results because it's you on the line. It's not the stock price, which is important too, but, but in a different kind of way. It's just good for leaders to think about that. Cause I, you know, we have a lot of CEOs on the show and a lot of times they work for big organizations and they go to smaller ones eventually. And then they take on and they're, maybe they're doing private equity too, but it's an interesting thing to think about. And I think you avoid the burnout. You you manage the stress of entrepreneurship by having an integration standpoint where you get your squash in. I played tennis last night and it just refreshes me to come in and make, make a contribution. And dang it, we're running out of time. Um, so, all right. When's the time you had an unexpected twist or failure in your career? And how did it lead your success or growth on down the road? Well, that's an interesting one. You know, uh, in 2000, I moved from Paris to Geneva to become uh, a marketing director for the laundry detergent of PNG, so Ariel Tide for Europe. And uh, it's a big step in PNG to move from brand manager to marketing director. So, you know, I saw that I was doing well. After all, I was promoted in a promotion from within company. And after like three to four months, I got a phone call from... Um, the marketing director of Laundry in France who replaced me. And it's, he told me, Pascal, you know, it's not okay. You're basically not doing a good job. And uh, you're basically killing us. You're too much in the details with the market. You're too much in the like, details what? with your team. I'm like, what? I wasn't aware oh. of that, obviously. <laughs> so I basically uh, talked with my team. Uh, I sat with my four brand managers and I, I, I asked them, what do you think? And then... I receive, you know, a bucket on my head. First bucket where they say, yeah, it's true. I give you this example, etc." Hmm. So I felt, you know, with this collective feedback, pretty bad. So I went back home and I shared that with my wife. And then my wife looked at me and said, that's true. Second bucket on my head. It's the same in the life, etc." So I'm like, okay. I reflected and came back next day in the office. And I decided, I, I regrouped my team and I said, okay, I'm going to change. As a marketing director, I'm going to stop doing. I'm going to make decisions and develop you at the best of my capacity to be high-performer members of the team. Mm. And the consequence is that my big mistake was that I didn't change and I did not let go and accepting the feedback in a way that enabled me to grow, enabled me to be the leader I am today. Mm. So what made you change was hearing it so you took the, what was the leadership? What was the feedback in general? What was the? Well, the feedback is that when you elevate yourself or you get promoted, you need to let go. To let go because you were sort of micromanaging the. Exactly. And you heard it the first time and it doesn't sound like you really believed it, but you took it to other people who know you. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, you, you micromanage the heck out of everything yeah and uh, i was a young oh. you know, leader and i took the i mean the learning for me the leadership lesson is that feedback is a gift it's your choice to basically mm. take it or not take it 
Yeah. But when you take it and you work on it, that can be an accelerator of your leadership journey. Oh, so good. So when you need feedback nowadays, where do you go? Oh, I don't need to go anywhere. People come to me and do it very honestly um, yeah. on a daily or weekly basis because it's about the culture you create in your own environment. We have a culture of approachability and honesty. I even add stark honesty in the culture of the company. So people are respectful, but forceful. And if they think that me as a leader, I'm not doing the right thing, they will not hesitate to come and, and share that with me, which, you know, I will take my pen and paper, take note, ask clarification question, and then it's my choice to act on it or not. Because you, mm. you take back control when people give you feedback at the moment when you decide what you do with it. Yeah, powerful. And it ties back to the importance that you put on the CEO being the social architect of the company to create that feedback mechanism. It's not, oh, yeah. it's, I don't think you get, I'm curious on your, th curious on your standpoint, because you've worked for so many different companies. I don't think companies naturally develop a culture of feedback unless the CEO is intentional about architecting it. I don't think people want the feedback or they're afraid of it, right? There's just so much fear if you're not intentional. What's your perspective? Yeah, and, and you know, sometimes you, you you need to put on top of something informal, a process of feedback. Mm. And uh, even yeah. if we're a young company, two years old, we have a feedback where we, have, we ask all our employees globally every year through a formal engagement survey with quantitative data and qualitative data, what they think. And we act on it. And then, you know, we also ask people to do some 360 feedback every year so that they can decide mm -hmm. how they want to go on their leadership journey. So on top of the informal network feedback, I think that putting in place certain processes is helping. Good. So Pascal, wrapping this up, sir, what is your parting thought for our listeners today? I would say that we didn't talk about something which is important, is a notion of, Honesty and being yourself. Hmm. As a leader, too many young leaders believe that they need to copy or mimic other leaders that they admire. This is wrong. Hmm. There is only your leadership that matters. Be yourself. Don't try to be somebody else and sharpen the saw every day because it's about hmm. never stopping learning. And, and basically, and when you are genuine and authentic, people feel it and they want to engage with you and they want to follow you. And the notion of engagement is sometimes more important than the followership. Mm. A good point to end on. Pascal, thanks for coming on Lead the Team. Ben, thanks a lot for having me. It was a pleasure. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of The Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.